good morning and uh, a Merry Christmas. Uh, right upon us, right? Uh, can't hardly believe that. Particularly when you look outside, it does not look like December at all. But uh, I have been trying to get into the Christmas spirit anyway, watching uh, Christmas movies and having a hard time finding the good ones. All my favorites don't seem to be streaming this year. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but there are an awful lot of really terrible uh, Christmas movies. But I'm always looking for the next good one, and uh, there have been a couple, been a few. Uh, most of these Christmas movies seem to depict various uh, backstories, um, different ideas about the origin of Santa. That's, that seems to be a huge focus. And some of them, again, are terrible. Some of, th some of them are, are really cute and charming, interesting, fun. Uh, but it's interesting. It's an interesting phenomenon, isn't it, that we can have movies about something called Christmas which so painstakingly avoid any mention of Christ, right? And we've all kind of gotten accustomed to this. It's kind of the norm. It's the norm for the entertainment industry. Uh, you know that uh, Charles Schultz, uh, creator of Peanuts, was the, the, the big exception to the rule when they first produced the Peanuts holiday special. He insisted that Linus read from the Gospel of Luke, and uh, the executives hated it. They did not like this at all. They were afraid that it would alienate their audience, and it was kind of a an industry rule that you just, you don't actually mention Jesus even in things that are about Jesus. Uh, so they were afraid that it was going to be a big flop. It was not, of course, became one of the, uh, a lot of people's favorite uh, holiday specials and is kind of that two minutes of Linus reading uh, from the Gospel of Luke is kind of one of those iconic television moments. But aside from these rare exceptions, the media really prefers to focus on secular stories, really prefers to look at Santa and all of their sort of retail dreams for the season. They want everybody to go out and do a lot of shopping. We're different, right? We're different here. Santa's all well and good. I don't have a problem with Santa. He seems like a nice enough guy. And he sets a good example for generosity, for, for love, for uh, caring about people. But uh, that's not what we're about. Now, I don't want to go to the other extreme. I know this time of year I'm always hearing uh, online and whatnot from Christian people about the, oh, you know, all of these Christmas traditions are rooted in paganism. Uh, I'm not going to preach on that today, but let me just say, they are not. <laughs> that, is, that is a false narrative. Don't buy into that. Don't get caught up in that. Uh, that's, there's a lot of hooey, and I don't know why we torture ourselves with these things. But uh, I do want to say that when we're thinking about what Christmas is about, when we're thinking about the holiday, we, in particular, do not want to forget what's really important. We don't want to forget what's really critical to this story. Now, Scripture doesn't require that we honor the birthday of Jesus. 
And historically speaking, it's incredibly unlikely that December 25th is the day. And as we were talking about the other night, the way that we present the nativity, incredibly inaccurate historically. But for the sake of convenience, we sort of selected a date and lumped a lot of stories together and made everything fit into a nice, clean, uh, short-term narrative. But really, really, we know that what this is about is a promise fulfilled. The arrival of a Savior and Messiah. And that's big news. And it was big news then, but only to a few people, and not the people that you would think. It's shepherds, people, people that nobody knew was paying attention. It's big news. When we have our focus refined on what's ma- what matters, it has an enormous impact on the way that we travel and where we end up. And that's why in this and in every other thing that we do, we have to be refining that focus so that it is on Jesus Christ. And this is where we come to our study today in Zechariah. Zechariah is the second minor prophet to the remnant. So there he is right at the bottom in the middle. Uh, He shows up really kind of around the time that the focus is changing from rebuilding the temple to rebuilding the city. So everything is about walls and gates, and we're getting into the narrative of Nehemiah, which we have not started yet, but that's kind of, kind of where Zechariah shows up. And there are a lot of problems. The people are facing a lot of problems. There's opposition to this ongoing reconstruction. There are threats being made. And morale at times is not very good. And there's a couple of different reasons for that. For one, it is an overwhelming task. They are a relatively small group of people. This is an enormous responsibility. It is very hard work. And not everybody in their community is trained as a wall builder or a gate builder. So uh, the task itself is kind of daunting and, and overwhelming. But there's a bigger problem in that even if they're successful, even if they get these gates built and they get the walls built and they begin to rebuild other other structures in the city, they still don't have a kingdom. They're still essentially an occupied people. They're under the authority of Persia. So they've returned to Jerusalem with all these sort of big prophetic visions about the kingdom being restored and how wonderful it's going to be and how God's going to be faithful to them. He's going to answer his promises. And then they're doing all of this work and those things don't seem to be happening. And so they're looking around them going, what exactly is the point of what we're doing here? If we finish rebuilding this city, what then? What then? And so there's a couple of different themes as we work through the through the prophecies of Zechariah. One is about God's immediate provision. Zechariah is reassuring the people that God is with them, that he's on their side, that he's going to protect them, he's going to provide what they need, he's going to love them, he's going to reward their faithfulness. It's all going to work out, trust me. And the other is a more long-term vision of a future kingdom, a hope that you're all working towards. 
It may be a long-off future kingdom, but it is uh, a future kingdom which God has promised. And so we find in chapter 1, sorry, verse 16 and 17, Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt, and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says, my towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. And so if we were to summarize the overall theme of the prophecies of Zechariah, I think it would be something along the lines of, do your present work with an eye towards future hope. The work must have seemed pointless at times. They are an occupied people, and they will remain so for quite a while. They're asking questions about it, but of course we know from our previous study of Daniel uh, that this 70 years, Daniel sees that the 70 years is coming to an end and, and has this uh, vision about that. And in the vision, it's revealed to him that because of the people's unfaithfulness, that 70 years is now 70 times 7. And so even though they're going to be allowed to return to Jerusalem, allowed to rebuild the temple, allowed to rebuild the walls around the city, even uh, fortified in that effort by pagan kings, they are not going to see this promised kingdom arrive for roughly another 400 some odd years. Now, I don't know about you, I find it difficult to plan 400 years in advance. We, here in this congregation, we have been trying to hammer out a five-year plan and trying to imagine where we will be in five years or what we hope for in five years is incredibly difficult. These people have four centuries before the things that they're working on right now are ultimately fulfilled, and that is difficult. If you're trying to keep morale up, if you're trying to stay motivated, it's difficult to think in terms of, i got to do this work so that my descendants, 400 years from now, will be able to see the Messianic kingdom come to fruition. But we must be faithful in our work. We must trust God that he is faithful to fulfill his promises. And... So the whole story, the whole project, becomes kind of a parable, if you will. A parable about God's promise. A parable about the coming kingdom. And a parable about faith. Because the only way that they can continue this work is to have faith that one day, everything that God said will happen will actually happen. And so in a sense, their work to the onlooking world becomes their testimony to the onlooking world that we believe God fulfills his promises. And so in chapter 2, verse 3 through 5, it says, while the angel who was speaking to me 
was leaving, another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it, and I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. And so the reconstruction of the city foreshadows the new Jerusalem. And there's a bit of irony here because one of the purposes of these prophecies is to encourage the people who were immediately involved in this reconstruction work. And the bulk of the reconstruction work at this point in the journey is about rebuilding walls and gates. And yet the, the prophet is saying, yeah, God's going to provide for you, he's going to protect you, he's going to get you through this project, but I also need you to understand that when the new Jerusalem finally arrives, it's going to be a city without walls. So everything that you're working on is temporary, but it points to something. This new Jerusalem is going to be a city without walls, and it's going to be a city without walls for a couple of reasons. One is, so many people, so many people are going to flock to the throne of this messianic king that the walls of the city will not be able to contain them. But also, it won't need walls. Because the righteousness of God is going to be the walls around the city. He's going to be the enforcement. He's going to be the protection. And in fact, he's going to be the light of the city, the glory of the city. Everything comes from this messianic king. And so there's something of a paradox here. Because the people are going to rely on God in order to get them through this perilous reconstruction of these walls of protection around the city of Jerusalem. They're going to rely on God in order to be able to fulfill their mission, and once their mission is fulfilled, it will allow them to stop relying on God. You see how that works? I mean, this is, this is sort of a human conundrum. We get caught up in this all the time. It is actually easier to rely on God when we don't have any options. In the process of relying on God, God blesses us, God provides for us, and then we suddenly have options. We look at the provisions that we've received from God and we say, oh, well now, because we have these provisions, we don't, we don't have to depend so much on God. And so the very thing that brought us our success, that brought blessing to us, becomes the thing that we dismiss. And ironically enough, we will do just about anything to avoid going back to depending on God. God may have blessed us then, but will not rely on God again. And sometimes we practice something I'll call the soft idolatry of security. Once we have sufficient control, once we have sufficient reserves, once we're comfortable, that security becomes the new object of our worship. Zechariah in 4.6, so he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not 
by might nor by power, but my, by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Uh, crazy enough, it's actually uh, Woody Allen who said it. I think he was quoting a Yiddish proverb at the time, but he said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him about your plans. We have to remember that our hope always lies in the future. It always lies in the future, but not, not in what we're doing in the future, not in the plans that we've made, but in the plans that God has made. So the prophet speaks to the people, essentially reminds them about the faithfulness of their forefathers. And look, it's tempting whenever God provides to try to hold on to that. But that's like, that's like storing up manna. You remember as the people traveled through the wilderness, if they collected more than they needed, it would come to naught. It would mold and rot and become more of a problem than a blessing. You can't hold on to the past. You can't even hold on to the present. You have to be looking to that hope that lies in the future. And this is the prophet's counsel to Zerubbabel and Joshua. These are the anointed leaders of Israel, and they represent the coming Messiah. They are depicted in these visions as twin olive trees, and the olive uh, oil is flowing down from the trees into a lamp, and that lamp is lighting Israel. They are by no means perfect men. The, the text makes that clear enough. But they are anointed. And they are, in this sense, a dim reflection of what is to come. Because the coming Messiah is going to be both king and high priest, to Israel, and then from there to the world. Now we talked about in the prophet Haggai how Zerubbabel is the signet ring. In, in, uh, in Zechariah's visions, we see Joshua given new clothes and given a crown, which is a particularly poignant prophecy because the high priest of Israel didn't wear a crown. In crowning Joshua, of bringing these roles together, that the Messiah is going to be both your high priest and your king. And it's particularly poignant in that the Hebrew pronunciation of Joshua is Yeshua, which might sound familiar to you because the Hebrew pronunciation of Jesus is Yeshua. I mean, there, there wasn't a guy named Jesus in, in the gospel narrative. Say, how, how did we get that name? Well, it's kind of an interesting story in and of itself. It's an Anglicanized version of a Greek version of a Hebrew name. And so the guy that we know as Jesus, more literally, is named Joshua or Yeshua. And so you think about this. How beautiful, how brilliant is this little bit of prophecy? The high priest of Israel is crowned, and his name is Yeshua. And 400 years later, an angel will appear to Mary and say, you're going to give birth to the Messiah, and you will call him 
Yeshua. Gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Zechariah 7, verse 5 and 6 says, Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? It's a very important prophetic theme. It's woven through most of the prophets at one time or another. And it's, it's, it, it comes in response to a question about how we should worship. And in this particular context, we're saying, look, we've been mourning the fall of Jerusalem, and now we're here rebuilding Jerusalem. Should we still be mourning the fall of Jerusalem? How are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to worship? And God's response through the prophet is a very familiar response. It's come through other prophets as well. It says, if your heart didn't belong to me when you were fasting or feasting, should you really be worshiping at all? Does it make any difference? What's the point? Jesus says, or the prophets, God says through the prophets that uh, he desires mercy over sacrifice. He, he questions the people, are, are you committed to my justice? Are you committed to my love? Are you committed to my kingdom come? Do these things matter to you? Because if they don't, your, your worship and your sacrifices are just kind of a stench in my nostrils. The remnant have an opportunity to represent the faithful. In this parable, in this testimony about God's faithfulness, the remnant have an opportunity to represent the faithful. It doesn't mean that they will. When they're asked about it, they're largely silent in their response. In one of these visions, Zechariah tells us that as the people that are gathered there at Jerusalem, two-thirds two of them, Two-thirds of them will be banished again. And the remaining one-third is going to be purified by fire, like gold or silver. They're going to be put through the fire. They're going to be tested. They're going to be purified. And then that remnant of a remnant will see God's glory. They will be glorified. Kind of precursor to Jesus referring to the way as a narrow way or saying that not all who call to me Lord, Lord will enter into the kingdom. But for the sake of the faithful, the promises will be kept and they will be saved by and saved because of their faith. And we have seen the arrival of the Messiah. But the question remains the same. Will we go through the motions while serving our own designs? Or will we be kingdom people living for another truth, for a different justice, a different hope? Because kingdom people create in a kingdom direction. What we build, we cannot hope to perfect because we are imperfect because our leaders are imperfect, because your preacher is decidedly imperfect. Amen. But we build because Yeshua is perfect. 
is the perfect king and the perfect high priest. We are striving to follow. We are striving to be like him. And the more that we do that, the more that we follow, the more like him that we are, the more of an opportunity we have to make our little corner of the world a corner of his kingdom. See, the hope of the remnant is the same hope that drives us. It is the hope that God steps into the world and that things will happen not by might or by power, but by his spirit. That people will be shaped by the love of God. That the church will be shaped by the word of God. That our ministry will be shaped by the life of Jesus Christ. Now we often get lost in our own programs and our resources and our facilities. And folks, we, we have ministries that we have to maintain. And we have ministries that we want to launch. And we have objectives, plans for this facility to make it more inviting and make it more functional. But don't mistake these for the point. Jesus is always the point. And the people that Jesus would build in this place, they are the point. And like him, we have to focus the bulk of our efforts on the people who are willing to follow him. Now, like the old adage says, you can lead a horse to water, you just can't make them drink. We could provide all the opportunities for people to become followers of Jesus. It doesn't mean that they will. But we believe that if we are faithful to God, he will be faithful. And so we do seek to provide all of those opportunities for discipleship, believing that he will draw to himself those who are prepared to follow him and that his spirit will be the resource, the driving motivation, the power behind everything that happens. And so we have, we have been reevaluating. We want to thoughtfully and intentionally use every opportunity, every venue that we have to build a foundation of God's word for people in this church and in this community. We want, a, we want them to understand the chronological history of the scripture. We want them to understand the books of wisdom. We want them to know the life of Christ. We want them to, to know the early church. We even want them to know Revelation. We want them to comprehend the gospel and kingdom and resurrection and grace and Holy Spirit and truth. We want to foster faith and reliance in the fierce love of God for his children. None of those should be controversial. But we sometimes, sometimes have to take a step back and sort out what does it actually look like for us to be providing those resources in the context of our local church. It's not just about education also about what people experience here, their spiritual formation, what kind of fellowship is available, what kind of accountability, what kind of Christian service. Are there opportunities to participate in missions, both foreign and domestic? You know that my daughters are, have just finished 
uh, the training part of their mission program will be here this, this next week and then are going back and taking off for Mexico. And please keep them in your prayers because dad's a little terrified. A couple of weeks ago, all these young ladies who are going through this training were invited to consider staying on with YWAM, perhaps joining the staff and continuing their work through that organization. Around here, we're dreaming a little bit bigger than that. We want to create a discipleship initiative right here in St. James, a six-month training and missions program where young people from around the state and perhaps around the country can come, face the challenges of rural missions, learn about small church ministry, immerse themselves in discipleship, learn to use their gifts for the kingdom, hopefully setting a pattern that will last for them the rest of their lives. But it's not just about those who might come. It's about every young person here, every young person that shows up on Wednesday night, every young person we encounter in the community. We want every last one of them, whether they receive it or not, to receive a challenge and an opportunity to literally follow Jesus to do so in a tangible way that will last for them a lifetime. But it's not even just about young people either. It is about us. We want every last one of us to be faced with that same challenge and same opportunity. I don't know who will answer that call. But God still has a call on our lives, doesn't he? Can we do any of this? No. I can't. Caleb can't. The elders and ministry leaders, absolutely not. Can we accomplish? These are, these are crazy pipe dreams. That's what they are. So why are we even having this conversation? Because God can. Because Yeshua can. We need to understand that what we build here, whatever it is, what we build here will reflect our faithfulness to our future hope. And if that future hope is in things of this world, if it is in the idolatry of security, then, frankly, what we build will not amount to much. And in the end of things, it will all burn up. And it doesn't matter how proud we were of it. If it is not for king and kingdom, it will disappear. But if our future hope is in Christ and his kingdom, then what we build through him will expand his kingdom. And we need to appreciate the fact that his kingdom is the only thing here among us now that will last forever. If we build for his kingdom, it will endure.